So we'll start with the question. Uh, uh, the, start, the question just asked of me, and then I'll ask a question of you all in the spirit of this being the last class of the year and uh, thinking about new intentions and new directions. So the question was, as we sit, just the plain instructions for just sitting and bringing the attention or encouraging the attention to rest in this current moment of experience and actually primarily in this current of, uh, moment of physical experience. Okay? I really did invite you to do that, to rest in the breath or the feelings uh, in the body, more than the current experience, say, of thinking or planning, because those are also current experiences. But the reason I, that, that, uh, that I suggested bringing the attention to a current physical experience is that by and large, if you're feeling comfortable, reasonably comfortable in your body, then the current physical experience is a neutral, is a neutral experience. It's not demanding, and it's not upsetting, and it's regular. If you feel your breath uh, coming in and out, it has a kind of rhythmicity about it, which turns out physiologically to be calming to the to the brain, to the mind as a function of brain to be calming, and uh, so the question was. It seems like, do you want to say your question again? Two things happen. That meditation teaches concentration, but, it, but is that really an end in itself, or is the end perhaps developing the ability to watch the mind do whatever it's doing? So the question is, is it just to have the ability to have a concentrated mind, or is it uh, on behalf of the mind being able to see more clearly the habits of the mind and what it's doing. I think it's A and B always, that uh, it does develop a kind of steadfastness of the mind. Um, uh, composure is a word that I think about a lot. And uh, so let's just hold that for a minute, the mind that's composed. And then I'm going to say the mind that's composed is more able to uh, countenance the habits of the mind, see them. Well, look at what I thought about that person. Look at how every time there's the least bit suggestion of something unexpected, I immediately think it's going to be a catastrophe. Look at how my mind is so easily captivated in these catalogs that come every day of stuff that I absolutely don't need, but I open anyway and then think, oh, this would be a great thing to have. That that the look at is not to say that we shouldn't actually delight in the many things that people think of, and some of them are actually delightful and wholesome to have. But the moment of, oh, look at that, my mind has just pounced on this, and my mind has just pushed this away, or my mind is suddenly grasping about that, gives my, my mind and yours, everybody's, the opportunity to say, oh, that's what the mind just did. I don't have to do that, though. The mind could do that, and then I could, I, whatever it is, or... Uh, there's, there's a place of reflection that could decide should action follow that. It reminds me of the words of the of the Buddha saying to Rahula, before doing so anything, you should reflect thus. Is this for my benefit, other people's benefit? Is this for a good benefit? Imagine if the whole world reflected before it did anything. We'd have a different world. What's the consequences of this? 
So it's on behalf of seeing the habits of the mind, uh, partly so that we can make skillful plans. Uh, this was not such a skillful uh, uh, thought. This, this didn't lead to a skillful end. This, this might. Uh, also, to change the habits of the mind when the habits themselves are somehow not habits that, that are, um, what's a more ordinary word, egocentric, are not habits that we like having. Like suppose I have a habit of, um, suppose I, I see that uh, sort of congenitally or coming from my family or whatever it is because of how I grew up or because of the way my neurons fire, I get easily angry. I just made that up because it's not true about me. I get easily worried. I don't get easily angry. But So it's nice to talk about easily angry. It's like hypothetical. But suppose I had that. And suppose I thought to myself, that's really unpleasant being all the time a little bit frosted and fried about things. It's much more pleasant to be temperate and forbearing. Uh, I've been thinking about forbearing as a word probably because I'm hearing Christmas carols and Christmas, if what forbearance seems to be one of the great virtues, it seems to be a wonderful thing to be able to say, well, that's like them, you know? That's just what they do. It's a form of patience. It's very, it's a lovely word. So suppose I, I said to myself, aha, uh -huh, I see that's a habit of my mind. I wish that weren't its habit. That by seeing that habit arise and say, oh, there it is again. So I'm not going to act on it. Oh, there it is. I'm not going to act on it. Take a breath. Isn't that far out? Look at that. I, such a kind-hearted person. I'm so, you know, I'm really surprised about that. That doesn't fit me at all. Look at that. That It turns out that the more that we disidentify from any particular habit, the more we're not held in the grip of that habit. And we're free then to act in other ways and subsequently develop other habits of mind. Uh, there's a book by Sharon Begley. I always get the name of the book wrong. Change, uh, change, train your mind, change your brain. That's it. Aha. I think I'm pretty sure that's right. Train your mind, change your brain, which is uh, journalistic reporting on mindfulness meditation uh, research showing that people who actually train their mind uh, in, a, in a disciplined way over time actually do change the way that their brains fire, and they fire less in the direction of angry and more in the direction of kindness or loving. So it is for the reason, so one of the secondary reasons, composure for its own good is nice because you're a little bit more balanced in your life. Composure in specific ways is good because it allows the mind to see the habits its habits, and to discern these are habits that are skillful, these are habits that are not skillful. I'll try to enhance these, and I'll try to minimize these. And that turns out to be really what, a, um, um, what the instruction is in the sixth of the uh, Eightfold Path, the sixth step of the Eightfold Path. Actually, what I had in mind, I was going to get up to it until 40 minutes from now or so, was I was going to say that, aha, see what we've been developing is that we're setting up to spend the next eight classes together talking about the Eightfold Path. Uh, you, if you were here in the very beginning of class today, I talked about the beginning of the year 
being the time that book companies publish a new beginning, eight ways to being slimmer, or eight ways to better driving, eight ways to a better memory, eight ways to uh, uh, a neater house, uh, eight ways to get a better job, eight ways to lose weight before Easter. So these are eight ways to become enlightened. These are the eight ways to become enlightened that the Buddha proposed which turn out to still be, I think, as valuable as when he proposed them 2,500 years ago. And that we would each week try to uh, focus on one of them. The truth is that I think they're all the same, um, that they're all eight different ways of looking at the same thing. But the sixth one, which is wise effort, is, is very specific. I didn't understand it for a long time when I started to practice. I thought wise effort meant trying hard or trying as hard as you could or trying as hard, trying very hard but not demoralizing yourself. But those are, those are kind of 20th century interpretations. Uh, what the Buddha said in the wise effort is wise effort is four particular things. Discerning the presence in the mind of salubrious states of, of uh, 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 peacefulness, uh, generosity, benevolence, compassion, uh, empathic joy, uh, delight, discerning the presence of those states in the mind and enhancing them, really consolidating them, cultivating them, enhancing them, discerning the absence of those states and trying to build them up, put them in. Discerning the presence in the mind of, what would you call it? Um, not unwise. Uh, non what would you call the opposite of salubrious? Non-salubrious, of, of uh, unwholesome, thank you very much. That's exactly the word I'm looking for. It's wholesome states and unwholesome states. Forget about salubrious, wholesome and unwholesome. Uh, discerning in the mind the presence of unwholesome states, anger, envy, greed, jealousy. Um, how many people here saw Vision, the story of Hildegard von Bingen? I did the other day. Huh? It is a movie. It was in the Rafael. I don't know if it's still there. Where is it? Okay, but it's still, it soon will be in the Rialto in Santa Rosa, where I'll see it again. First of all, I liked it, and second of all, I cannot remember the one line that gets repeated three times, at least in the movie, and I tried to Google it, but I'm not coming up with the right thing. But in essence, it has to do with uh, the arising in the mind of envy and the, and the rule of St. Benedict. The, uh, it, it's a, uh, uh, I, I, I think it's a Benedictine rule where the, the, the response to it is envy is, and I don't remember the whole rest of the quote. Do you remember it, Susan? You, uh, but do you remember that they say it three times? Envy is a poison in the mind that blah, 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 leads to nothing good. 
and after it, but love, on the other hand, is a da 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 very good thing. So I thought of actually, I was going to go to the Rafael yesterday and see if they would let me in for the first five minutes of the movie, <laughs> because I wanted so badly to have this quote for today's class. I tried all plays online, Benedict, Benedictine Rule, da 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 and I'm not getting it, but... Anyway, I think it's a worthwhile movie, and I'll go back because I think it's a worthwhile movie. Whether or not, and I'll take my paper along with me and write down the quote. But uh, in essence, saying that envy is really a poison in the mind and kills any spirit in it, and it's not good for you. Neither is envy and anger and any of those embittered states because the mind is closed in. It's in pain. It suffers. When I have envy, I'm thinking a bad thought on this person. I wish they didn't have that. But my mind is what the mind that's feeling pinched at that time. So it's a self-inflicted wound, that envy. So it's, um, anyway, so to encourage and build on, on wholesome states and find unwholesome states, to put them out of the mind which does not mean to pretend they're not there. It means to do something else, to say, that's a place I don't want to go. Excuse me. I'd rather think something well. May all beings be peaceful and happy. Uh, may all beings flourish. May it even arise in me that I have such a good fortune like this. I mean, to wish oneself well about having something where you feel envy for other people. May I also feel equally envy of, of happy as I imagine that this person feels. There's nothing bad about wishing well for yourself. It's the wishing of, it's the feeling of envy. Rrr, they shouldn't have that, which is painful in the mind. So I need to go back and see it. So the, 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 uh, the um, attention to whether the mind is filled with envy or uh, greed Or, and to put it out of the mind, or noticing, that this is the fourth of the right efforts, wise efforts, to notice that the mind does not have any unwholesome states in it, and to rejoice about that, say, great, I'm keeping them out. So it's, are they there, or, or, and are they not there, and depending on there or not there, in or out. But all of that requires tremendous discernment moment to moment. But I think to myself often, that that wise effort is the most unsung hero of the whole Eightfold Path. People talk more about wise action, wise uh, concentration, wise mindfulness, because effort, ah, it sounds like it's such an unsexy thing. I, you know, it's you know, like, how will I make wise effort? But that's exactly how. It wasn't just trying hard. It's watching exactly what's going on in the mind. Yeah. So the, the very important question is, how do you notice an unwholesome thought without compassion, without judgment, and without stuffing it? Definitely without stuffing it. You know, and I think about you know, something that I really want, and I don't have it, and I know I don't want I, I really would like to have it, and I'm wishing. I, can't, I, I hope that what I can do is say, wow, I really wish I had that. I really do. I wish I had it. I'm really, it hurts me that I don't have it. I'm in pain. Sweetheart, you're in pain. May I have that? Or may I come to terms with the fact that I don't have it? I can be compassionate towards myself 
for feeling pain about not having something that I really want. There are lots of things that we really want and to acknowledge it and somehow not, uh, not compound it by um, our feelings about other people having it. I think a perfect example comes to mind. I'm trying to figure out if I finished that question though before I plunge into this example, which I was going to tell you anyway. So you had two things. Is it about seeing the habits of the mind? I think it is. Or just concentration? I think it's both and all the time. I think it's also about um, continuing through seeing the habits of the mind and through negotiating through them skillfully and not acting on the ones that aren't wholesome that keeps the mind uh, concentrated and composed. One of the things that it's just interesting, I, I heard it as, a, as an axiom of practice when I first began, and every year I understand it more. One of my teachers said, when I was still thinking, mindfulness is knowing moment to moment with clarity what's happening in all different spheres of my life, inside, outside, uh, in response to what's happening. That's mindfulness. And concentration is staying with one thing over and over and over again, which deepens its composure. There's a certain, like, being with breath, being with a mantra, being with one sound over and over again. To a certain degree, that's true. That does deepen and steady the concentration. It's also true that being mindful moment to moment in a balanced way deepens the concentration. And the deepened concentration really supports the being balanced, mindful every moment of the time. If you think mindful is open to what's happening, now this, now this, now that, now this. Whoa, who expected that? But okay, I can deal with that. Then you can see that the concentration is supporting the mindfulness and that the mindfulness, which is continual moments of uncom uh, un, um, continual moments of awareness and acknowledgement without uh, pushing or pulling away any of it really keeps the mind in that steady and concentrated way. They're really actually part and part of each other. It's not possible to say, first I'll get really, really concentrated and then I'll be mindfulness. I'll be mindful. We become more mindful or I'll be really, 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 really mindful and then discover that lo and behold. One of the ways, by, by the way, that people who do long, uh, usually intense retreat practice notice this, is that uh, in doing uh, intense concentration practice, like uh, metta practices, it often happens to people that they're, um, they experience considerably altered mind states, like all of a sudden the mind is filled with rapture, filled with joy, really filled that you know we hear those we hear those phrases uh, and they sound like metaphor the mind filled with joy well it's not like a bowl how would it be filled with joy I mean the mind is limitless or filled with peace well is it a box that could be full or empty I mean how could a mind be filled with peace it, but so it sounds like a metaphor but actually the experience of that is that there's nothing but peace or nothing but joy 
And it's often true that people who do very intense concentration practice in very modulated um, uh, retreat uh, circumstances often experience those uh, sudden uh, shifts of consciousness where there's nothing but joy or nothing but light or nothing but rapture. It's also true that if people do intensive mindfulness practice, noticing this, noticing that, noticing this, noticing that, with many objects of attention, experience spontaneous breakthroughs of complete minds filled with joy or gladness or peace or rapture. So these same, uh, they're often called jhana states, and they're often called absorption states because it means the mind is so absorbed in peace or contentment or rapture or joy. It doesn't experience anything else, but it can come through this path or this path, and these paths are actually self, self uh, inter-supportive. So why did I say that? What was that pursuant to? I was going to say something before that. Uh-huh. Okay. What was I saying just before? I was answering his question. That's right. Okay, question answered. <laughs> I think so. It's good for everything. A, it's good for everything. Just as, maybe this is the end of that question. There, uh, there uh, Often people will talk about having as a practice breath awareness, anapanasati uh, is uh, the awareness of breath only as uh, a practice. In a normal mindfulness practice retreat or class, we would start with awareness of the breath and then move on to awareness of body states and awareness of e emotional response and feeling tone and uh, the contents of mind and the seeing of insights and let your, uh, let your attention open to everything that's happened, Being a, be aware of the food that you're eating and the smell of the shampoo, and everything is an object of awareness. And in Anapanasati, you say, just the breath, all, only the breath all the time. But the truth is that people do only the breath all the time, and their mind opens into these vast spaces of clarity where everything is revealed to them about the, the causes and the end of suffering. And the truth is, if they do it this way, the mind opens into those states. They're just different paths to the same state. So they say the mind somehow gets concentrated enough and balanced enough it can open. How you get there is how you choose. That was a very long answer to that question, but it was a good answer, so I'm glad I started with it because the particular point that I wanted to make was an answer to your question about the arising, uh, what happens when uh, envy arises or any other, what you might think of as ignoble thought. I don't, I don't actually think it's so ignoble to have envy. Uh, I imagine it'd be ignoble to act on the envy or do something about it uh, or greed. You could do something ignoble in response to it. But that they arise in the mind, I think that that's a, a normal thing that arises. So I was going to tell you a, I was going to tell you a story that happened to me. Okay, pick up the pace. <laughs> 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 
one of my adult children, of course, all my children are somewhere around 50 years old now, but one of them said to me, listening to me talk to one of my grandchildren, she said, you know, Mom, what you said more than anything during our childhood was pick up the pace. You were always saying pick up the pace. <laughs> pick up the pace. I said, no, I didn't say that all the time. I said, yes, you did. So I've been listening to myself going places with my grandchildren now, say pick up the pace, pick up the pace. <laughs> whatever it is, going someplace, handing in the homework, doing whatever, pick up the pace. I said, where did I get that? You know, so, but uh, anyway, but maybe it's a lifelong thing. Maybe it's not even bad. So who knows? Anyway, I'm just going to say to myself, pick up the pace. I, was a lot of, I wanted to say a lot of things. I wanted to say, starting with intention. Okay. Well, I'm going to start the way I thought I was going to start. Here it is a new year. You've all come out to practice. This is a wonderful big group. You came for a reason. You want to do something. You know, I, we, I come for a reason. I'm better in the weeks that I'm here than the weeks that I'm not here because I am one way or another, no matter what I am teaching about, articulating my intention. Nobody got here by accident, opened their eyes, said, whoa, here I am, it's for a rock. You know? <laughs> it came for a reason. I'm going to think about doing this first or second. Um, Maybe I'll do this first so you get a chance to listen to somebody else and then you can listen to yourself for a minute. This I read you a little bit of this book some weeks ago. I love it. It's called Dharma Road, A Short Cab Ride to Self-Discovery. And uh, it's by Brian Haycock. It's just newly published and I love it. And his practice is uh, driving a taxi uh, in Austin, Texas. Seriously. So this is his own... Uh, and he's a Zen practitioner driving a taxi in Austin and writing a, a book about. Uh, so this is, chat, this is the introduction. It says, hi, where would you like to go? That's what I always say to people when they get in the cab. It's a friendly greeting that breaks the ice and gets things going on the right foot. I smile when I say it. I turn partly around. I make a little eye contact. It's a good question. Where do you want to go? Barton Springs for a nice cool swim, out to the oasis to watch the sun go down over Lake Travis, downtown maybe to a club on 6th Street, hear some good Texas music that we like so much in Austin. How about a journey of self-discovery, a ride down the Dharma Road? Tuesday afternoon, I'm working downtown, checking the hotel stands, cruising the streets, cab 119, ready to go. I load a woman at the Four Seasons, take her up to the Capitol, then I take two men, from the Omni to the Double Tree, I take a radio call at Brackenridge Hospital and load an old man with a broken leg and a hard cast. He's headed home to an apartment on East 5th, riding on a hospital voucher. He needs a lot of help getting inside. Then I'm back downtown, loading at the Hilton, taking a woman in a gaudy green pantsuit up to the university, listening to her talk about how much she likes Austin and saying, yes, ma'am. I like it here, too. It's a pleasant afternoon in the cab business. It's a lot like yesterday afternoon or tomorrow. It's a lot like your life. There's always something going on, but in the end, you wind up pretty much where you started. Then again, it's not typical at all. It's unique. It's a completely new day, one day that will go by and never return. The people, the traffic, the sound and feel of the city, the way everything moves, it's all new, and it will never be this way again. It's all in how you look at it. 
cruising down Congress Avenue, I hear a whistle, see a man waving at me from across the street. I'm all over it. I make a tight U-turn, coast up to the curb in a New York in a New Yorker nanosecond. Smooth. Three men in matching dark gray suits going to an office building north on the interstate. One of the men sits in front. He acts a little nervous, fidgety, like there's an important meeting coming up and he spent the day drinking coffee to get ready for it. He's ready now. On the seat next to me, there's a well-used copy of Sun Sang's classic, The Compass of Zen. It's sitting on top of a pile of maps and guidebooks and all the clipboards I use to keep track of my cab company paperwork. He picks it up, stares at the cover. You reading this, he asks? Yeah. It's something important to keep me occupied on these long waits in the airport. You really understand that Zen shit, he says? It's pretty strange stuff, all that one-hand clapping shit. That, that Zen, right? Yeah, it is. It's a koan, a puzzle. And you get that? Well, not that, no. Koans are pretty advanced, more for full-time monks, people with the time to put into it. You can't really do that if you're driving a cab 90 hours a week. But Zen's not as confusing as people think. Mostly, it's just an appreciation for everyday life. The basics are pretty straightforward. There's some philosophy, meditation practice, ethics, that kind of thing. And you can go on from there, build on that. He grunts, already losing interest, leans back against the seat, and jumps into a conversation about amortization, depreciation, allowance, something or other, a, a topic that makes as much sense to me as the one hand clapping does to any of them. When they get out, he hands me a 20 and says with a grin, Good luck with that Zen shit. Then he, then he turns and trips over the curb, <laughs> losing his briefcase as he throws his hands out to catch himself. The case pops open and the papers spill out across the stones. That Zen right there, the, what, the moment, the one you didn't expect, the moment when you notice that your life is one little surprise after another, the moment that you realize that ordinary life isn't ordinary at all. Then again, Maybe he shouldn't have called it Zen shit. That couldn't have been good for his karma. <laughs> anyway, I, I really hope a million people buy this book because I really love it. it goes, it's, it's, I who was here when I read some more from it the other day. It's very, very funny. It's called Dharma Road, and it's by Brian Haycock. Um, so I want to think, I wanted to ask you, this is a two-minute talk to the person next to you break. My friend Martha, who I mentioned before, it's four years since Martha died. Martha used to be here all the time, part of this class. And Martha said, as soon as you said, turn to the person next to you, I run out and go to the ladies' room. <laughs> I hate that sharing business. So overcoming any dislike for the sharing business Find one or two people next to you, either a group of one or a group of two, and first find that. Then I'll give you the question. Ready, set, go. Find the person. You don't know what to do yet. <laughs> You don't know what to do yet. How can you be doing it? Okay, the question is, 
the question of the taxi driver, keeping in mind in the context of why you come here or do anything else in terms of what we do here or talk about doing here. Where do you want to go? Now, each of you gets 60 seconds to tell the other person. 90 seconds. I'll ring the bell at the end of 90 seconds. The person with the shorter hair will start. Now the other person is telling. I will wait. But now the second person is telling.
So some groups, a few groups had three people. So the three people group might still be talking. And the two people groups, might each of you be thinking of what is the one word, one word that encapsulates what you want? Where are you going to? We'll let the three people groups finish. What, where, if, if the, of the name of the place that you are going has one word in it, or two or something, but one thing, describe, the, describe in a name where you are going. Where are you going? Patience. Susan is going to patience. Wise speech. Wise speech. Right here. Right here. Balance. Balance. Self-acceptance. Kind awareness. Kind awareness. Stillness, loving kindness. Stillness, loving kindness. Serenity. Serenity. Centered awareness. Centered awareness. Service. Service. Connection. Connection. Ted. Equanimity. Equanimity. Surrender. Surrender. One heart. One heart. Right, effort. right effort. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Fearlessness. Fearlessness. Beauty. Beauty. Authenticity and integrity. Authenticity and integrity. Responsibility. Responsibility. All right. Moment. This moment. Peace. Love. Love. Discovery. Discovery. Gratefulness. Gratefulness. Inner wisdom. Inner wisdom. How many people, if they if we put all those places in a hat and uh, you could reach in and get one of them, how many people would be happy to have any of them? Keep in mind, I'll, t I'll tell you the one that I thought of because I'll tell you the story behind it, but it's not any better or any different from anybody else's. But just I wanted to have a story and I wanted to tell you where I was for the last two weeks, three weeks. Because the word that I had which encompassed everybody, uh, I, it came to my mind because for a few things. First of all, I, I could remember 
I was thinking about a talk that my friend Jack Cornfield used to give a lot in which he used to end it by saying that this practice promises the heart's sure release. And that just pleased me so much the, the, that my heart would be freed from whatever kinds of struggles it was in and, and I'd had freedom in essence. Uh, and I was in I, one of the places I was for these three weeks, because I think all of these are, we could say patience is freedom from uh, the, the tension of impatience and the pain of impatience. Any of them is freedom from, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. and saw, uh, 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 I guess uh, it's the Constitution that, do ordain and establish this constitution, assure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. I thought about, about the various ways I could think about the meaning of the blessings of liberty. Uh, one of the things that I did, maybe the, the thing that was for me the, the most remarkable moment of my three or four weeks on the East Coast, is I spent an afternoon as a guest and a teacher at Bedford Hills um, uh, Correctional Facility, which is a long uh, term, uh, what you, high security prison for women, uh, somewhere in Dutchess County, New, New York, uh, an hour and a half from New York City. Uh, and I spent an afternoon um, I was there as the guest of the Jewish chaplain, who's a friend of mine, uh, who's a rabbi, who's a longtime mindfulness practitioner. As a matter of fact, is a graduate of the uh, dedicated practitioner program of Spirit Rock. She's uh, one of three rabbis who's a graduate of the dedicated practitioner pre program at Spirit Rock, uh, and has been teaching mindfulness to. Uh, a group of probably 15 women that were there that afternoon. And uh, uh, I, was eager to, I was eager to go. Uh, uh, Joanna's a friend of mine, so when she invited me. I certainly wanted to go. Uh, I, I look forward to it as I do every teaching opportunity. Um, I had only a moment of thinking uh, the people who are in prison in, in a uh, in a high security prison with very long sentences have uh, in their record something quite grievous. Um, often, for the most part, with these women, uh, one <coughs> one grievous mistake, but a really grievous mistake a long time ago. I spent an afternoon with fifteen women. And I had maybe a moment of, will I feel different with these people than any other place? I walked into the room where they were all waiting for me and sitting in a, in a semicircle of chairs. And they were all saying, oh, you know, here you are. And there was one chair in the middle of them, empty. So I said, can I have this chair? And they said, sure. And I sat down. And it's in five seconds, it was just like being with any other group of 15 women anywhere who wanted to talk about freedom and liberation and it was enormously touching to me that what they described as their own mindfulness practice was very clearly an, a, a, a desire on their part to cultivate 
wholesome mind states, to not cultivate unwholesome mind states because of their appreciation of the freedom that the mind feels when it's not caught in despair or frustration or anger or negativity or resentment. And they are going to spend the rest of their lives for the most part in this, in this facility. Because when you get a long-term, when you get a life sentence, you can't even go up for a parole board for 25 years or something like that, and then maybe. And at some point in the afternoon, and, I, and, and they would tell stories about, a, about the, the, um, the challenges to equanimity. Somebody says, you know, it's so hard here. Something, somebody's doing something stupid and annoying every minute, so it's hard to keep yourself calm and composed. And it's a, it's a very unfree life that they live. They can't leave, clearly. They can't go from the, from the chaplain's office where we met to their um, dormitory without it being on the hour, because from on the hour until five minutes past the hour, gates are minded and open, and they can go from one place to another. But unless it's the move, which is 4 to 4.05 or 5 to 5.05, stay where you are for the rest of their lives. They can't go anywhere. It's very touching to be with them. And at one point in the afternoon, in the next room, in the adjacent room, there was a burst of applause. Yay! So someone, I guess my, my friend Joanna, who's a chaplain who can get up and just go into the next room and check it out, went said, I'll go see what the yaying is about, and came back and said, uh, Rachel made her board which means someone named Rachel, who they obviously all knew, had been up before the parole board and her parole had been granted. And all of these people spontaneously delighted, yay. I was thinking this is such a moment of real mudita that Rachel in the next week or two is going to leave that facility. But the rest of them aren't. And to be able to so genuinely and thoroughly and spontaneously rejoice in somebody else's good fortune, which is exactly the good fortune that you don't have now and may never have, I thought, wow, this is something that uh, you have to have a free mind that's liberated enough to say, yay. And they, you know, they look definitely elated. It was also Hanukkah. So... uh, at the end of the afternoon, we lit uh, Hanukkah candles. And um, so I got to light and then passed them to each person. And each person passed, and they passed back and forth so everyone could have a candle signifying freedom. Since Hanukkah is a liberation holiday, we have freedom from oppression. We, can, we are free to do as we want. Here are women in a place where they're not free to do as they want, who are making the hope that in an interior way they'll be free to live as they want because in an exterior way they can't be. It was a very, very, very touching afternoon for me. Somebody said after that, I think it was actually, I I, I don't remember how it came about. There was a moment, uh, and maybe I, I, I don't know, I may have said when we finished and all the candles were lit, I said, you know, in my family, we all hug each other after we lit the candles. So it's a group of a dozen, 12, 15 women standing. And 
They said, you know, we're not allowed to hug in here. We can't, you can't touch. They said, and they, they said to me, can you imagine how it is to be 30 years without a hug? I said, no, I can't. I said, well, you know, the guard is not looking in the door at this moment. So, <laughs> so uh, they didn't hug each other, but they hugged me, which was fine because that, that wasn't going to get them in any trouble. But I thought to myself, these are extraordinary women. They did something really unwise at some point. I thought a lot about our criminal justice system. But that was that was maybe the most uplifting moment, them applauding Rachel made her board. She's out. Seriously, after spending an afternoon with these women, hearing their stories. So I wanted to talk to about their ability to be free to a certain degree, free to celebrate other people's triumphs. Three more minutes to tell you everything else I wanted to tell you. Um, I want, I'd like to be free to celebrate everybody else's triumphs. I'd like to be free of every limiting view because it's more fun not to be. I went to the Beacon Theater on my last night in New York because I was staying in the hotel right next door, and the Irish tenors were singing in the Beacon Theater. Do you know the Irish tenors? The three Irish men, clearly Irish men, because they're very thick brogue, and uh, they sang lots of uh, Tipperary and Killarney and uh, uh, Danny Boy and Irish songs, and. Uh, I think a lot of New York firemen and policemen must be Irish because they made a lot of comments, the, these three performers, about firemen and policemen in New York and how wonderful they were. They got huge applause from the audience. So maybe whole fire brigades bought tickets and they knew they were there. So, but a lot of uh, public servants, fire police, yaying these Irish tenors. And it was wonderful. And then they ended the evening all these Irish tenors with a very big brogue singing God Bless America. Twice, three times maybe. And this whole audience uh, stood up and was singing God Bless America and actually holding their hands over their heart as they sang God Bless America. So I stand up with everybody else and I watch my ridiculous mind say, hey, first of all, this is for the Star Spangled Banner. This is not for God Bless America. <laughs> so why are you holding your hand? I'm holding my hand because everybody else is holding. That's why. But, the, but here's my, uh, and I think to myself, what kind of a mind just doesn't put your hand and say, this is groovy? And says, you know, I shouldn't be holding my hand. This is, and what do you mean, God Bless America? That's such a, um, a provincial thought. God bless the whole world. If I want to say God, first of all, I have to have the whole mental discussion about... <laughs> Where, where, where do I stand on the question of God? So, you know, which complicates everything. Why can't I just stand up and sing God Bless America? For God's sake, you know, just... I have to have the whole theological discussion in my mind about, and America overall, it's triumphalism. That's uh, one of the things that concerns me about uh, tribal religions. So why America other than everybody else? But then, do I want to stand amidst all these people who are holding their heart and singing God Bless America and not do it and not sing? I'm singing and I'm holding. 
and I'm singing and I'm holding it and I'm having the best time, you know? <laughs> I'm having the best time. If I, had the, if I had the courage, I'd say, let's all stand up and sing God bless America, but, which it could use. But anyway, but I, I thought to myself, so I had a good time. And in the moment, I thought, look how limiting every view is. Why do I believe about God? Why do I believe about hand? Why do I believe about this? Why do I believe about that? What do I believe about parochialism or uh, universalism? I have all kinds of views about all kinds of stuff, but they, which really do govern how I vote and how I invest and how I this and how I that. But they don't have to discover, they don't have to color whether or not I get up in a theater and sing God Was America with my mouth open. It's just a, a, so what I would like for myself is I'd like to be so aware, I'd like to be so clear in my mind that I could be aware of my views and not held hostage by any of them. It's the being held hostage by it, trapped by a view. In, um, ah, we don't have any time. When we come back next time, Maybe you will have gone to see The Tempest with Helen Mirren. It is wonderful. And it, if you could, once your ear turns on to the uh, Elizabethan speech, um, there are some people who plot evil based on greed and uh, really become uh, intoxicated with their desire to wreak evil during it. And there's a wonderful line uh, which I don't know if I could find for you right now, in which Prospero says they are uh, prisoners, either Prospero or Ariel, they are prisoners of their distractions. So I want so not to be a prisoner of my distraction. I, I, want, to be able, I want to notice the distractions, but not be a prisoner of it. That's what I'd like. I'd like freedom. Um, the sure heart's release. So maybe we could um, end our class by, by um, wishing for all beings in this world. May all beings be so freed from all the confining views, particularly those views that imagine anyone's plight to be independent of the plight of everybody else, particularly that view, because if that view were disabused, if people stopped thinking that view, we could all together do something to change the course of the history of this planet, securing the blessings of liberty for ourselves and everybody's posterity. We could even say amen. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.